This episode is brought to you by Inspirio Enterprises. Inspirio helps schools increase enrollments through innovative and cutting-edge admissions and marketing tactics. If you are interested in learning more, go to inspirio.com slash edup. That's I-N-S-P-I-R-I-O dot com slash edup to see special offers exclusively for edup experience listeners. Today's guest is Michael B. Horn. Michael is an education futurist, the author of Choosing College, and he's a frequent contributor speaking and writing about education today and tomorrow. Now let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience. Joe Salustio here. And this is Elizabeth Saliva. And on the line, we have Michael Horn. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing great and uh, even better to be with you. Great. Well, Michael, where are you and how are you and your family faring during uh, all this craziness uh, that we have going on right now with the virus? Yeah, thank you for asking. We're in Lexington, Massachusetts, so just a little bit outside of Boston. Uh, and, and you know, we feel incredibly fortunate during this time. We're, uh, we have our health. Uh, we are relatively set up for the homeschooling uh, that is going on with my two daughters and, uh, and uh, just taking shifts and making it work. Uh, and we just feel lucky, I think, uh, you know, me personally to be in an industry like education where we can uh, help impact so many lives positively right now for, for people that really need it. And thanks for saying that. And uh, just quickly, as we as we talk uh, through this podcast, uh, you know, obviously, um, many of us are work from home right now, myself included, and I know Liz is as well. I have two mm-hmm. kids. There's a possibility for screaming or door shutting um, <laughs> or, or something going on. We try to keep this as professional as possible, but we do what we have to do um, here. So hopefully our audience can bear with us. And Michael, I don't know how you feel, but you know, with my two young kids, um, never in my life have I ever appreciated teachers more mm-hmm. than I do now. Yeah. Um, Isn't it the truth? Well, it, it yeah. clarifies that they provide an important role that is not just uh, the learning, but but actually providing a place, a safe place and a happy place. Right for our kids to be during the day when, when we're mm-hmm. taking care of other things. And, uh, mm-hmm. and and that is an important role in society. Absolutely. Yes, it is. Well, let's let's dive right in, and you know, I'm gonna ask you a question. Um, it's it's a topic you're familiar with. We we had a, a guest on this podcast early on, uh, Brandon Busteed, and and I believe you were on uh, talking with him on one of his projects recently, and you guys were discussing uh, obviously the disruption that we're having in higher education right now, and how online education is faring, uh, whether it's looked at positively or negatively. And you were talking about how time might play a big part in that. If this goes on longer uh, or if it's short term, that will affect the perception of online learning. Where do you think we're going right now, given, you know, things keep getting put off, um, you know, almost months at a time. And and we don't really know what, you know, kids aren't going back to school until the summer. How do you think, you know, the perception of online uh, learning is right now? People looking at it positive, negative, give give us your once over on on how you think the industry is moving. Yeah, well, you know, with anything, it depends on where you sit, right? So it's it's hard to generalize too much. But the I think for those who were in brick and mortar uh, schooling environments and have been thrust online, 
uh, you know, they're, they're probably not thrilled with the experience at the moment. They're, they're sort of saying, what is this? Uh, if this is online learning or digital learning or, or distance learning or remote learning, they don't know what it's called, but they're sort of saying, I don't know that I want this. If you're uh, in an online environment or you're a student who is able to look for a natively online environment, uh, I think you might have a very different perception right now uh, because you're presumably with a school that has known how to do online learning, uh, do it well and so forth. And so uh, I, I, I think the longer this stretches on, the more people are going to start to look to online environments uh, that uh, from providers that have had a long history of, of running online learning. And so uh, as they migrate, they'll have better experiences, I think, than the hastily built and, and quickly migrated ones uh, that they have now that I think are, are, are not sitting well with much of the public, even as the public is willing to give a short-term pass, uh, because we're all empathetic, obviously, to what we're all going through right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go, go ahead, Liz. Yeah, no, I was I was just going to agree. I, I think that it, it's I, somebody posted a, a Forbes article yesterday that kind of spoke to exactly what you said, Joe, that a lot of the um, surveys that they're doing, I think it was a survey of about 560 students and high schoolers who had to attend school online. And a lot, a lot of them are having negative experiences, which I was pretty surprised by. But I guess it speaks to what Michael said is that the classes that are being hastily built it's a little difficult to really provide a quality experience for the students, which is, I think, a little bit um, sad and not really representative of what online is really supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And, and it's sort of, you know, they're hastily built. There's not a lot of experience by those who are uh, moving into it at the moment. From If you've been in a brick-and-mortar setting, you don't have a lot of resources uh, behind you necessarily, uh, or to the extent that you do have support teams that are running from place to place. And taking... Uh, lessons, plans, and lectures, and things like that that were built for a face-to-face -face environment. I mean, let's be honest, a lot of those probably weren't high-quality learning experiences themselves either, but rapidly <laughs> moving it into an online environment is not just, it's just not the way online learning ought to be built. And we know there's great online environments, but they're built by teams, right? They're built by uh, instructional designers that come in and help you think through how to chunk information, what should be video, what should be visual, what should be audio, et cetera. Uh, and very thoughtful, robust experiences when done well. And I, you know, it's, it's why I think so many in the industry right now are saying, don't call it online learning, call it remote learning right. or call it something different. And I just mm -hmm. think if you're on the demand side, you know, you're a student or family or learner, you're not thinking about those distinctions right now. You're just mm -hmm. like, this is online and it's not very good. Uh, and, and that's sort of your perception, uh, ignoring, you know, how good it could be because you, you just don't have experience. Now, again, the longer this stretches on, I think uh, people are going to start demanding better experiences and they're going to start to go to those who really know how to do it well. And, and to your point, uh, then maybe online starts to get a better name uh, because more people start realizing, hey, there's actually a really good way to do it. And then it starts shifting the market, frankly, because then all of a sudden the providers that you thought were so good, maybe you're not the ones at the top of the heap once we're talking about an online environment. So, so uh, Michael, uh, you know, obviously a big, a big piece of this, and we've uh, talked about this on some of uh, our previous uh, episodes, but it, you know, even before COVID-19 comes into place, there's this big discussion around uh, closing colleges, right? Mm -hmm. it's, a, 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 it's a big enrollment disruption coming 2025, 20, 2026, 20, the value of college 
um, is being questioned. The return on investment is not being clearly communicated. Employers are are complaining that people are coming out of college without the skills to survive in the in the job world. How does this uh, this situation we're in now uh, does it does it um, uh, advance closed schools? Uh, maybe advance is the wrong word, but does it speed up the closure of schools by what percentage, by what amount? And what's your overall sense? Of course, this isn't going to be, we're quoting Michael Horn here to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 97%. Uh, but, but what's your sense on, you know, what you're hearing out there in the industry of, um, you know, because obviously uh, this can't be good for colleges that rely uh, primarily on tuition revenue to be able to survive this, even if it's short term, right? Six to nine months could be a huge, huge revenue decline. What's your sense on totally. the speed at which we see schools closing? Yeah, I, well, look, I think it's going to absolutely accelerate the uh, closures. And, and so obviously I'm on the record of saying I think a quarter of schools uh, over mm-hmm. the next couple of decades are at risk of closing or, or, or merging or in some cases declaring financial exigency, which is higher ed's version of bankruptcy. Uh, but I think uh, it'll accelerate that time frame by, by some considerable amount. You've seen some folks, uh, there's a, a, a professor who wrote a book saying that he thinks only 10% of institutions are at risk. He's now on the record of saying, well, I think it's double that. I think it's 20%. Uh, and so some institutions that admit, which is a company in the space to help uh, students understand pricing better of their higher education options, uh, they have a model on colleges closing and some of the ones that they thought were four or five years out are already uh, signaling that they might close. And so I think you're seeing a, a doubling, if you will, of impact of schools that, that are on the bubble. And to your point, it, you know, it's all about cash flow right now. And we know that as schools enter this particular time period, uh, cash starts to uh, go to its lowest level. And they still have expenses. They have faculty they need to pay, administrators they need, administrators they need to pay, uh, brick and mortar, uh, uh, campus uh, maintenance uh, payments, and the like. And if they have softness uh, in 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 cash, it could uh, very quickly spiral out of control. And so you're going to start to see a lot of cost saving measures go into place. And you're already seeing uh, furloughs occur, pay cuts being demanded. Uh, and the like from many institutions, I think you're going to see an acceleration of that if this lasts six to nine months, particularly if, you know, I mean, here's here's the big thing. If if we hit the fall and in many campuses, students are still not allowed to go back to campus, uh, then I think a lot of families are going to say, why am I paying uh, whatever the price tag is, but a significant amount for an experience that I thought was not just the classes, but also the social experience, the living in the dorms, et cetera. Uh, and then you're going to see people either not go uh, or even more demand for uh, financial uh, discounting of the price, and that's just going to create catastrophic uh, problems. Now, the other thing I think is important is my sense was that a lot of the closures were going to be mergers before. I think that there's going to be fewer partners who are able to acquire uh, or merge than there were. And so I think the number of closures relative to mergers is going to increase in the next uh, year uh, as a result of this. I agree with you 100% because, you know, obviously schools that might have been in a position to help out or, or take a merge, uh, to, to be the uh, to be the greater part of that merger may not be willing to take on the, the financial risk at this point, That's right? Exactly so there's right. a lot less yep. risk tolerance out there than there would have been normally. So I think closures increase mm-hmm. as well. What does this do to, what, what does this do um, to uh, um, proximity uh, and choice? Mm-hmm. I mean, do you see as a result of this, do you think that 
that kids, you know, let's talk 18 year old looking at going away to college, do you think this completely reframes how they choose an institution because of the disruption this may cause over years? Really? I mean, they're talking about eliminating handshakes, Michael. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, you think about that, is, is that play a part? You think, I mean, you, you, you've written a book choosing college on, on how people, um, parents and, and 18 year olds go and choose an institution. Does this change everything? Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Look, we're seeing already in the survey data that uh, many students are saying, thinking of taking a year off, doing a gap year. Uh, I I would have argued, and this was a a conclusion from our book, Choosing College, that many more students should have been thinking about that to begin with, but this is making it a reality. And then second, you're seeing students saying that they are much more likely to want to go close to home. And I think a big part of that is if they say, you know, my school might open, but it's pretty likely there's going to be some other physical distancing measures that are put in place, uh, and, and this school will close temporarily at least, well, then all of a sudden... Uh, you're saying, well, how quickly can I get home? And if I'm, you know, say across the country at a place not near a major airport, uh, that's not going to look very attractive. And so I'm going to want to be within a two-hour drive is my sense uh, of home. And so, you know, look, more students attend uh, within a 100-mile radius uh, than most people realize for college. I mean, the stories that dominate are those that travel. But the reality is, uh, I think, Yes, it's 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 more of a regional market than people realize, but it's going to even increase uh, more as people say, I'm not too sure between these two options that I want to take what I now perceive to be a risk of going far away when I could stay at home. And by the way, again, they they want to be thinking about the price tag because a lot of families have had their finances wrecked in this. We have 16 to 17 million Americans uh, who have filed for unemployment in just the three, last three weeks alone. We know many more millions have had pay cuts uh, in salaries and so forth. So it's yeah. right. So the and, and this is just the beginning. So we, we literally, you know, a lot of families are going to say, well, that's great. You wanted to go to that fancy school af- across the country, but we can't afford that. We need you to go to a local school closer to home that gives us more optionality and is uh, a lower price tag. So I think there's a bunch of factors that are playing in there that are going to keep people closer to home uh, or push people who traditionally would have looked uh, for a brick and mortar experience, frankly, to look for online providers uh, that know how to do it well. Absolutely. And we've spoken a little bit, Michael, about like the traditional students, um, you know, the, like my daughter's 21. So we're, we're talking about students that typically would be looking for maybe a residential experience or going away to school and things like that, which as a family, obviously we sat down and we all made the decision together. But what about the, the new traditionals? Like what most schools are kind of all scrambling around, which is the working parents or the first gen students. What would you advise schools to do in terms of increasing ROI? Because we're seeing from all of the news reports and all the articles and and all of the statistics and data coming out that it's going to boil down in a lot of ways for these students in terms of if they want to enroll in school, if they feel like it's worth their time and their money. But it seems like based on all the stats that are coming out, a lot of people do feel like maybe college is not worth their money and their time. So how do we negotiate that in, in terms of higher ed and, and making sure that we're providing a quality product for the student? Yeah, Elizabeth, it's an excellent question. I, I you know, I, I think that there's going to be a big uh, set of questions where in, in recessionary times, we know that the quote unquote 
new traditional or, or adult learner, et cetera, uh, typically go back to school to wait out the recession while uh, they don't, you know, while, while there's not as many jobs in the labor market. And mm -hmm. so clearly you're seeing evidence that that's already on the horizon. We're seeing a lot of data saying uh, searches for online colleges, online courses, online programs have shot through the roof. So it's interesting mm -hmm. that they're saying online because they know that brick and mortar may not be an option. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> but um, the question, I think, frankly, is time horizon over which they return to programs, because they might sit it out for a little bit and sort of try to shop and think through what's the best way to use unemployment checks and just try to figure out, mm -hmm. like, what's my situation right now? It's scary out there. And then mm -hmm. secondly, uh, it's, it's the question that you're asking, which is how do you, you make sure that you're getting good value for whatever you ultimately decide. And there I think it's gonna, you know, schools that are trying to figure this out, they're gonna have to be uh, very strategic about having a mix of short-term programs for those industries where they are hiring and that you can get someone into your school and then back into the workforce very quickly. Uh, and then longer term programs where maybe a part of the economy is softer and it's going to make sense for a student to sit in the program longer because if they graduate too quickly, frankly, there's not going to be an option uh, on, on the other side and they're going to have wasted dollars. And so pattern matching that uh, and, and being very rigorous about where are the industries that need people now, they need shorter term programs that are potentially not degreed programs, uh, and then where are the places where a student can and maybe needs to uh, invest for longer in themselves and full degrees and the like uh, will be valued more, that's where I think, uh, you, you, you know, that's where you're going to need your longer degreed programs and being very savvy about that and making sure you're matching it to the individual circumstances. You're not talking about this at a high level of just blitzkrieg advertising of, uh, you know, we've got, we've got both, right? You're, you're gonna have to match it to the learner and what they're trying to achieve and the progress they're trying to make uh, so that you can say, hey, we get you, we empathize with you and we're the right place for you to make progress. Do you think this brings, Michael, do you think this is gonna bring employers and education closer together? I mean, there's always sort of, uh, you know, uh, we have this, uh, there's always this sort of uh, dissonance on that uh, college or traditional college programs are not training um, people for the workforce. Uh, people are unprepared coming out of college, employers, you know, we had a, a guest, uh, his name is Bernie Weiss. He's the president of iHeartRadio um, <laughs> in New York. And he says, uh, you know, uh, nobody's trained the right way. I mean, these are sales executives and we want them to sell and they have no sales skills. I need them to actually learn sales skills in, in some way if they're going to do this job. Does this, uh, because of the unemployment rate that you mentioned, because of the increasing number of families that are going to be in financial stress, is this a, a really good window for an employer in an educational institution to get engaged together where maybe that would have taken more time before to get people trained for the workforce that we're going to need uh, to come out of this, which is could be a long recession. Yeah, so I, I'd love for the answer to be yes. I, I think it's unclear, though, for a couple of reasons. One, again, in recession environments, typically companies cut back on their education training uh, budgets because uh, for two reasons. One, they don't have cash themselves, and so they're trying to preserve. Uh, and two, uh, the labor market is softer, so they have sort of their pick of the crop, if you will, right? Because okay. people are desperate for jobs, and they, can, yeah. and they can find them easier. The silver lining, I think, for what you're saying that would be wonderful uh, is those companies, 
companies uh, that are looking at this a little bit more strategically as a return on investment play, and those uh, uh, education organizations that are willing to invest in actually proving the case, if you will, that this is not just a feel-good investment, but this is something that's actually going to move your key performance indicators and actually materially benefit your business. And we can show you, right, that if you invest with us, uh, uh, you know, to take the iHeartRadio Example: If if, if uh, students go through this program, uh, then they they actually are better salespeople in these ways. Uh, if they can actually prove the case, then I actually think you couple, uh, uh, you know, those two partners uh, more tightly together and 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 make it more durable. That whether times are good or bad, you actually have a very strong relationship here. And so I think it's a time to invest. Uh, in proving the case in those outcomes measures to be very clear about it. The other thing I think that's a, a really cool opportunity right now is schools are obviously moving more online, education's moving online, employers are moving online as well in, in terms of remote distributed workforces by necessity. And a big question is, well, how do you say uh, do a, a certain program uh, uh, you know, or, or, or help educate someone in a particular skill when you can't do it in a face-to-face -face, uh, environment, for example, sort of these experiential learning opportunities. And I think it's a tremendous opportunity to source projects from employers online, uh, embed them in these educational programs to make the programs way more relevant and actually situated within the context of the employer themselves. To me, that's the big that's coupling opportunity right now mm -hmm. is really sourcing and, and embedding it as part of the curriculum. And then, you know, sort of the academic knowledge, if you will, should complement, right, and, and scaffold to those experiential opportunities, which should really be the meat of a program. You're listening to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Remember to go to the EdUp Experience website at www.edupexperience.com to listen to our past episodes, including amazing guests talking about a multitude of topics in higher education today. That's www.edupexperience.com. Now, back to it. Absolutely. We had read it. We had talked about an article, I think about two, three weeks ago that came out where people, they, they survey people and a lot of people were saying that they felt as though uh, an internship at Google was more beneficial yeah. or more relevant than a Harvard degree. Right. And we were all like, wow, that was mind blowing. <laughs> we were mind blown by that. But that really yeah. speaks to exactly what you're saying, that there needs to be more of a coupling between the, the employer and the, 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 the institution to be able to deliver that for the for the uh, consumer, for the end user. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I mean, and we're seeing, it's interesting right now, like, you know, executive education at Harvard is cratering uh, amidst this, right? Because why would, uh, uh, you know, companies, <laughs> no surprise, right? They're, they're not going to spend literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousand dollars to send someone to Harvard uh, amidst this current time. Uh, and if you can source, say, an internship or a project from right. Google, and there are plenty of companies now that do that for universities, Ripon, Parker Dewey, uh, and so on, that give you these micro internships that you can embed in the curriculum, 
that's a tremendous opportunity and actually a distinguishing point for the uh, higher education uh, to say, hey, you know, you can now go uh, on your LinkedIn profile and say, I did this project for these employers, right, and I got a degree from X. The, to me, the, the combination will be very powerful. That would be amazing. Well, and, and tech, you know, you're, Michael, you're in the ed tech world and understand, um, you know, disruptions happening in higher ed in general. And I, I think that's, you know, there's a, you know, you've written a blog post about a month ago on uh, COVID-19, the boost to online learning may backfire. And we talk a little bit about that. Uh, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's really the most, it's, it's uh, to me, I mean, other than colleges closing, it's, it's the most interesting um, an important topic that we could talk about amidst this crisis because you have an industry that that I think to many outsiders um, and maybe some insiders it moves slow or um, <laughs> in most instances uh, don't adopt uh, and change quickly uh, there's a committee for everything you ever heard somebody said to me uh, once I can't remember who it was, wow. but the best committee is a committee of three when two people show up sick um, <laughs> but that's not yeah, that's not that's not higher ed, right? It's it's uh, it's and so now you have this supercharged reason for change that is that is a negative reason for change. Uh, it can be looked at. Uh, you could take change away positively from it, but it wasn't a positive uh, uh, catalyst for the change. And, and then there's elasticity, right? This could rebound higher ed backwards. Uh, where mm -hmm. they, you know, people look at this technology and say, no, th this is exactly what I thought it was. It's as horrible yeah. as I thought it could be. And uh, now I'm not going to look at it again for 10 years instead of when I was going to look at it five uh -huh. years now. You know, so how does that, I, I mean, how do we end up after all this? I, that's the most fascinating thing to me to talk about is, you know, an, indus an entire industry that's been forced to change and now has to deal with the fallout of that. I mean, it's just, well, where do you think we end up? I mean, it's a big question, but, yeah. but how do no, you think things look? Yeah, it's a big question. I, so I think a couple things are going to happen. One, I, I, you know, to be charitable, I think, and, and fair to the higher ed institutions, um, which I, I agree, they're generally slow moving and so forth. They, they did actually move pretty rapidly, right, in this case. And, and I don't think Absolutely the experiences did. are amazing and so forth, mm -hmm. but, but I will give them props for uh, in most cases, getting ahead of it compared, frankly, to the K-12 education system, um, they are, you know, they moved much faster uh, to, to move online quickly and, and independently of governor uh, recommendations and the like. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they made their own decisions and calls. Uh, so I, I, I give them props for that. That's one. The second thing I would say is, uh, to your point, you know, yes, it, and I, I've written about it. I, you know, you're quoting me exactly right, uh, which is that the, <laughs> you know, the backlash is going to happen, and, and faculty are going to say it is what I thought it is, and I'm not doing it again. But there's this silver lining, which is that any school that does not have a robust disaster preparedness plan now on the shelf that uh, uh, has an online learning component to it is just you know, flying, it just, it, it's idiotic, right? There's no other way to call it. You, you just, <laughs> you have to have a disaster preparedness Stay plan like that is, is now covering online learning. Yeah, there, there you go, right? <laughs> I, I don't generally quote. write this We're going to quote you on that one. We won't. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe, maybe, well, then no, go for it. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'll, it'll boost my Twitter following. But the, uh, <laughs> there you but go. The, <laughs> you know, you've got to, you've got to, 
you've got to have that in place. Now, I would also say, by the way, they need disaster preparedness plans that account for cybersecurity hacking that is not online learning. But everyone's got to have an online learning plan that is much more robust than what it was and that has a way to put up a higher quality, better experience. And so you may not like it, you know, uh, whoever had a bad experience, but we're going to invest more in this because what else are we going to do? Like, it's just, you're otherwise risking yeah. the future of the institution not to. Now, the third thing I think is, even if the traditional institutions don't move as much as uh, I think they ought to out of this crisis, again, the longer this goes, learners are going to start to say, I'm not spending $50,000 to go to a traditional institution when it's online. Uh, I would rather go to an online institution that has been doing this for years, that knows how to do it, that has experience, that is on the cutting edge, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I, I think that so what, what you'll see is that the volume will start to move to these disruptive players uh, that do online learning well. And so maybe it's the case that the traditional brick and mortar can continue to hate online learning. And that's an over-exaggeration, right? I mean, we know some of them have very robust <laughs> online programs. But just for sake of argument, you know, they can just say, we're going to continue our traditional ways. And maybe that's fine because the volume of, of students is just going to say, well, that's great. We're going to vote with our feet and go to the online providers. And so I, I do think that the longer this happens, the more it, it actually drives volume to online learning and, and in a way that actually will sustain itself uh, for the long haul, particularly, you know, in graduate programs and master's degrees and these short-term certificates that we've been talking about that have a very clear job uh, or professional uh, aspect to them. I, I, I already that was moving online pretty aggressively, and I think it just accelerates the case. Absolutely, I agree, and I think you point to Michael something that um, I was looking at an article this morning from Chronicle Higher Education, and a stat that we always keep hearing about is the cost of the cost of tuition. We're talking about costs, mm -hmm. and we're talking about the students voting with their feet and looking at ROI, but we've seen education in terms of the cost and tuition expenses skyrocketing over the past decade where um, it's just not keeping up with the salaries that people are making when they graduate, and that's why people have this mm -hmm. ton of student loan debt. What do you think about some of these radical policy, governmental policy, federal policy suggestions? The article that I referenced talked about free college for all, canceling student loan debt. How do you feel about some of those um, strategies or suggestions from a governmental intervention policy? How is that going to perhaps change how we do business or it, are those types of strategies something that you think could be beneficial for higher education? Yeah, it's a great question. I So I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, I, I'm not a fan of, of canceling all student debt or okay. uh, making free college. I, th I think it's uh, basically what you do is you you, you prop up what is a, an expensive uh, set of institutions that don't serve students or, or taxpayers well today, and you actually crowd out new innovative offerings that are coming in that are lower cost and, and more attuned uh, to the value that, that learners need. And what I think we really need is, is a system that uh, more robustly encourages those those disruptive offerings that are uh, lower priced, lower cost uh, to come in and lower the price of education in that way. Uh, and so basically break up the cartel, if you will, of uh, mm -hmm. institutions that have access 
uh, to, to, to seemingly be free because you can take out uh, federal financial aid, which is debt, uh, to, to pay for them, and then not realizing that there's going to be a whole host of payments on the other side that you're going to have to continue to make regardless of how you do uh, from a job perspective. I think programs that are coming in that are more affordable, that have lower cost structures, that don't have all the legacy fixed costs, uh, and that leverage vehicles like income share agreements uh, and things of that nature that actually are uh, create risk for the institution that is tied to the fortunes of the individuals uh, and their success in the marketplace when they leave. You know, can they get good paying jobs that pay pay back the tuition uh, is much more where we ought to be going. Um, and the, the last part of this is, you know, if you cancel student loans and things of that nature, it's going to yeah, and, and we could talk about one subtlety on this in a moment, but it disproportionately benefits uh, those people who are actually the most well-off in society. Because what people mm -hmm. don't often, I think, realize about student loan debt is that it's uh, disproportionately held uh, in terms of total dollars uh, by people who have gone to uh, expensive graduate uh, school programs like business school, law school, medical school, and they're on the upper income of strata, you know, upper income uh, of society typically, and they will, you know, they'll, they'll make them enough money to pay it back. Like it's okay. Where, where the real problem is, the real weakness in the market uh, from a debt perspective is those students who go to college. Uh, take out a little debt, relatively speaking, you know, like five, ten thousand dollars, and do not complete uh, the program, uh, and uh, and and therefore don't get the earnings bump that you get from a degree, and still have these debt payments uh, to to pay off, and and they just struggle to do it. It's there, there's several more times likely to default uh, if you haven't completed, and so forth, and so propping up a sector that is not good at graduating students, that is not good at placing them. Uh, into programs and has a bloated cost structure just by, uh, you, you know, making it free to the student, but but asking taxpayers, some of whom aren't even going to go to college, to pay for that. I, I just think is, uh, is is a really bad idea from a quality value and fairness perspective. That having been said, you know, you're starting to see some policies say, well, for low-income learners, should we cancel their student debts? Uh, you know, that's probably something to look at. Uh, I, I, I haven't fully thought through the ramifications. I, I saw. Uh, presumptive, I guess, Democratic uh, nominee for, for President Joe Biden uh, just uh, literally a couple days ago, uh, dating the podcast, I guess, but uh, our conversation um, uh, came out and said he, he would be in favor of, of students below a certain income threshold getting student loan forgiveness. Uh, you know, that, that, that might be something to, to look at, although I think we have to think about, you know, what's fairness when you've entered into a contract uh, as, as well and thinking about other other ways to support those learners, uh, perhaps getting their education in a debt-free way that, that leverages income share agreements or other mechanisms. Yeah, and I think, I think, and I think you, you really what, free, Liz? I, I mean, yeah, and, 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 I, and I agree, and, and I, I, I definitely agree with Michael in terms of fairness, you know, there definitely is a contract there, but then arguing from the student perspective, the student goes to school, takes on that debt, expecting in terms of the contract between them and the, mm -hmm. the institution that they'll be able to get a, a nice paying job, and then when they get out there, there's no job there, the, the skills that they were promised they would have, like sales skills were not taught in the curriculum, so I guess you could argue both sides of it, right? I mean, well, it's but, definitely but, so, an interesting question. So, so here's question. the better policy. Yeah, but here's the better policy fix, because I think you're right, which is let's make colleges have some risk sharing in that sure. equation, because right now it's Absolutely. just students and, and taxpayers um, who have that. Right. Why don't we have a percentage of, stu of, of the college's ability to take those dollars being contingent sure. on students being able to pay that back? 
and uh, colleges obviously would hate that idea. But but I, but that's <laughs> exactly. where I think we. Uh, but but that's where I think we got to work is to somehow. Right. Make you know, them look, responsible. I, I think kind of make them responsible. Exactly. And, sure. and look, students bear responsibility too. I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I've been, I've been slammed on one uh, radio show for saying that <laughs> students bear no responsibility of this because otherwise they could just slack off. And, and I, I, you know, I, I think I'm more on your side on this on this particular point, which is institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they're selling a bag of goods uh, that is yeah. not going to result in a positive ROI, that's just not fair sure. to the learners, and yeah. they're 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 foregoing a lot of costs, both in terms of time and money, frankly. And that's not yeah. uh, that's not something we should be comfortable with. Absolutely. When you have students complaining that the the, the information they're learning in classes is decades old, and they go into the mm-hmm. employment sector, and the employers like, "What is this? You don't even know the ba- you don't know how to use Salesforce, for example, the example that we used a, a few weeks I ago totally on the show." Uh, yeah. You don't know how to use Salesforce, but you're going to come in here and, and, and sell leads and go out there and beat the street and go door to door, but you've never had a sales training. It's just, it oh, kind I of boggles the mind. I, I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, look, you know, I, I obviously wear the hat of, of head of strategy and entangled, and we incubated a company called PathStream uh, that helps people learn what we call platform centric skills. So, Salesforce, HubSpot, uh, 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 you know, things like that that are just used in, in, in daily. Uh, uh, workforce, right? F- Facebook digital marketing, things of that nature. Because sure. it turns out, you know, learning your, uh, w- what is it, your four C's and your five P's or whatever of uh, marketing, that's not the way it's done anymore. You need exactly. to know these digital platforms. <laughs> exactly. And so these, these sort of outdated curricular frameworks and right. so forth by faculty members who, sure. uh, you know, they're getting ahead by publishing in academic journals and very narrow exactly. things that are disconnected from the, the employer market. It just doesn't make sense. But I also think we have to be very careful as a result of putting policies in place like free college that would actually just prop up those very structures that are not aimed at the labor market outcomes that we want and and instead ask the question, well, how do we get providers in the market that are actually going to deliver real value for students and and make them responsible for it? I, I totally agree there. Absolutely. Thank you. So Michael, much. what's what's uh, what's next for you? I mean, do you uh, are you going to go back and write uh, choo- another choosing college book amidst all of the the change we've seen in, in higher ed? Uh, what's your next <laughs> choosing project? college after COVID nineteen, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, I mean, it's right? changing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'll, I'll, let, let me let me answer just a quick thing that you didn't ask there, but it's implicit in your question, which is interesting, and then I'll I'll answer your question directly. Um, on the on the first uh, part. Um, What's interesting is jobs to be done tend to be extremely durable. So help me get into my best school, help me do what's expected of me, help me get away, uh, help me step it up and help me extend myself. Those are the five jobs we found in the book. Those are very durable uh, and don't actually change that much from year to year. So even with the system shock, help me get away is still going to be something that students feel. But what they hire, like what they choose to attend uh, to help them make progress against that, that actually can change very dramatically. So behavior uh, or or customer choices around a job can change dramatically based on context. And, and my sense is there needs to be, a you know, help me get away is still going to be a job that students have, but they're not going to be able to go to the college three hours away necessarily, right? So what's the new thing that we can innovate to allow them to get away? And by the way, not take on a lot of debt and and and, and an experience misaligned, right, with the progress that they need to make. So I think there's going to be a lot of room for innovation, and, and in some ways, I think the book maybe uh, it's not going to be situated quite in that context, but it actually could be more relevant to help uh, innovators think this through than before. The 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 second piece 
uh, I would say is, you know, in terms of what am I up to from a thought leadership, I guess, perspective, uh, a, a, a whole bunch of stuff. I'm trying to figure out the best way to add value for folks. But the book that I'm looking at writing right now is uh, Choosing What's Next. And, and it's sort of helping people as they're thinking about switching careers and making mm. uh, their employment decisions. What job are they hiring uh, a new job, if you will, to do in their lives. And so we're starting to do some interviews uh, about how people make these uh, changes in career and changes in job and what's really driving them and how can we give you as, a, as, as an individual better advice and how can we help the mentors and HR officers and all these people uh, uh, better support you through these uh, decisions because uh, there's a lot of uh, craziness uh, in that world right now and, mm -hmm. and, and people making decisions based on uh, at least from our early uh, interviews that we've done, some things that I would say, wait, really? That's why you changed your job? Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, so how can we help people sort of have more information on the front end to make a better choice? Outstanding. Well, we're coming up uh, close to time, but in the spirit of, of our third co-host that wasn't able to make it today, we're going to ask oh. what he loves to be the last two questions of the episode <laughs> um, that we have here. And the first, they're big questions. Um, the first is, uh, and you can answer them in any order you'd like to, Michael. Uh, what, uh, when all is said and done, what would you like to be remembered for in uh, your time in higher education? And what do you believe the future of education in general looks like? Yeah, the, gosh, great question. So uh, on, on the first one, you know, look, my, my mission in life is to build a, a world in which individuals uh, can build passions and fulfill their human potential all, all over the globe of any, you know, of any age and stripe. And so, I, you know, if, if, if uh, at the end of all this uh, run, it said that I helped many more individuals personally, right, um, be able to have options that allowed them to chart uh, the life that was meant for them and, and fulfill their potential, I, I'd, I'd be thrilled with that. And if we could move the education ecosystem across the, uh, across the world, uh, uh, if, you know, for everyone from the smallest learners to, to the uh, oldest, that, that would be a tremendous uh, success from my perspective. Um, the, the, the second uh, question I, I think is obviously, a, you know, more complicated, but I think what we want ultimately and, and I think what we will see is a is a much more diverse uh, higher education ecosystem with a variety of uh, uh, providers and schools that offer a variety of different programs uh, of, of different lengths that are attuned to the different progress that students want to make and, and connect to employers uh, in really rich uh, uh, ways um, that are far more affordable. And, and I think some of those will be short-term programs that employers pay for. I think some of those will be short-term programs students pay for. I think there will, there will be liberal arts options that allow students to really deeply explore uh, not just what do I want to do, but who am I as a person. Um, and, and I think we really want a diverse higher education ecosystem uh, that is much more responsive to the progress learners want to make uh, and, and helps them get ahead in their lives, both from a work perspective, but also civically and, 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 and happiness, right? And so I, I hope that as we move forward uh, in 30 years from now, we, 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 see, we see a higher education ecosystem that is more diverse and responsive to the needs of learners. Absolutely. Outstanding. Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, sir. It has been a real pleasure for us to, to sure. hear your insights from a true uh, thought leader out there. And um, you know, we encourage our audience to connect with Michael on uh, LinkedIn and follow his work, pick up his book, 
um, it will uh, open your eyes to certain parts of uh, higher education that uh, we all need to be looking at. So, Michael, thank you so much for your time today. Thank hey, thanks so much, much for Michael. having me in the. Uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm deeply appreciative. You all asked great questions, so I appreciate it. <laughs> All right, and there you have it. Uh, Michael Horn, just uh, uh, what an interview. Uh, Liz, what did you think mm. about that? It was so fascinating. I mean, his ideas, his insights, he had so much knowledge and background about higher education from soup to nuts, A to Z. He just kept coming with more and more knowledge. He was just dropping knowledge after knowledge after ball after ball. I was like, wow, wow, wow. So yeah. I was just scrambling and taking notes and I was really interested to see just his thought process in terms of education as a whole, the direction that it's going to go in. And I, I like the fact that he talked about time. Um, I think with online education, we haven't necessarily, it looks like now we're like, okay, we've thrown these classes online. We just expect it to be up and running and for students to enjoy it. And for someone that's been teaching online, like myself for a decade, it's disappointing to see that a lot of students are stating that they're having negative experiences or faculty are struggling or institutions really weren't prepared. But like he said, it is going to take time and, and it's just going to be really the, the, the cream will rise to the top. And that's really a lesson that in higher education we need to learn. I think we talked about it for weeks over the weeks of uh, our different guests that we've had, especially since this crisis has occurred, that Sometimes the planning isn't there, like you mentioned. Um, there's really a resistance to change, but the change was deployed relatively rapidly. But the ones, yeah. the schools that really focus on quality, the schools that really focus on what's best for the student, the, the schools that really, um, really want to deliver a quality product for the student over the next few months will be the ones that rise to the top. And maybe the ones that don't survive will be casualties of war. And like you said, that's just um, how the game goes. So we just have to really wait and see and hopefully the strong will survive. Yeah, and you know, it's I I, I enjoyed his, his commentary. You know, he he writes a lot, and he's out there uh, speaking a lot about uh, higher ed topics. But the most, again, the most interesting thing for me is the what's going to happen at the end of the, of this virus. So assuming we get to an endpoint, um, and higher ed, you know, has just transformed itself in many ways to service students, and does it completely transform back, uh, or does mm-hmm. is there some middle uh, ground? I mean, I don't think everybody is going to completely. Uh, change you know there's going to maybe be different types of models that come from this though i mean you know so uh, it's going to be really interesting to watch how our industry is really changing in front of our eyes in such a fast way it's not an evolutionary mm-hmm. way it's a, it's a forced evolution right. and then we get to see what an end product is uh, with the beginning part of that change really not too far behind us so um absolutely. yeah i think he's going to continue writing about it so pr- pretty awesome conversation for sure absolutely i love the, the concept of ROI and putting the onus on the school. Because I think for a long time, like he kind of alluded to, it's almost like the mob. It's like, hey, we're untouchable. We can do whatever we want. And we're not. We have to be accountable. The student is a consumer and we're not too big to fail. And maybe this is just the wake-up call that higher education needed, to be honest with you. And you know what, Liz, what makes uh, I think the EdUp experience so special when you, when you use the word we, it, it's, it's true. Because all three of us, you, Ellen, and I all work in and for Absolutely. higher education. Case. Absolutely. So, We're in the we trenches are, here. <laughs> yeah, we are the we. We're not sitting outside somewhere going, higher ed needs to do this or that. We're dealing with... Wave, wagging our finger at them. <laughs> not wagging our finger at them and say they need to change, right? <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, thanks again, Liz. Great episode. Same we'll here. To you Thank you. Talk to you soon. 
Hope you enjoyed that episode. To learn more about the EdUp experience, please visit edupexperience.com. That's edupexperience.com. And please feel free to rate, review, subscribe, and share this episode. We really, really appreciate your support. You've been listening to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business with your hosts, Joseph Lustio, Elizabeth Leiber, and Elvin Freitas. <laughs>